protective effect of the vaccine, it's actually the exact opposite of what everybody's concerned about. If you have the vaccine, you are going to be protected from thrombotic complications from COVID-19. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Some European countries, including Germany, have halted dispensing the AstraZeneca vaccine. In today's episode, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang about whether that decision was based more on science or politics. Plus, new data on how the U.S. can reach herd immunity. Let's listen. Bill, Fred, again, thank you in advance for taking the time to share some insights with us. Uh, Over the past week or so, headlines have really been about potential side effects with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And maybe you can unpack that for us. Uh, What are you seeing? What should people be aware of? And also want to ask the question that we're hearing from uh, others. um, Are there implications here for Moderna, the Pfizer vaccine, the J&J vaccine? Well, the the biggest thing, David, is that the rates at which these complications are being seen are not in excess of the rates that these complications happen in people in general without vaccination. It just so happens that they're being seen after a vaccination, so people are attributing them to the vaccination. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're at an excess rate or done because or happening because of the vaccination. Um, but this is on the on top of some concerns around the world about the AstraZeneca studies that were done. Not that they were done poorly, but they were not done as consistently as the studies were done involving the mRNA vaccines. That is specifically the reason why the U.S. FDA uh, told AstraZeneca that in order to apply for U.S. Uh, uh, authorization, emergency use authorization, they wanted to see a large 30,000-person U.S.-based, strictly done study. Uh, and that's being done. That's As I understand it, that study has actually been completed and is in final analysis and getting ready for a presentation uh, in, the next, in the first couple of weeks of April. Uh, what that's going to do is that'll answer many of the questions that the Europeans have now, uh, the European people have now. But so the issue is going to be, though, can they overcome this this PR issue that is developed that is not as more of a crisis of confidence than it is a, a crisis of science? Yeah, Bill's exactly right. And uh, I work in the emergency room periodically, and one of the leading uh, admissions is for uh, thrombophobitis and pulmonary embolus. This is very common in our population, and this is before COVID and before any vaccines. So the we Bill and I calculated that if there are five million doses uh, in Germany, there should have been, uh, if taken five million individuals normally without a vaccine, there'd be 140 such events, and they're reporting 30. So there's no increased incidence among those that are vaccinated. The other important thing to keep in mind is if you get COVID-19, there is overwhelming evidence that you are at increased risk for clotting and thrombophobitis and uh, pulmonary embolus. Therefore, the protective effect of the vaccine 
it's actually the exact opposite of what everybody's concerned about. If you have the vaccine, you are going to be protected from thrombotic complications from COVID-19. What should people uh, be looking for just in terms of uh, side effects? Let's start with the AstraZeneca vaccine. We have a number of listeners who are abroad. What should they be looking for, thinking about, and without it becoming a Bill and Fred, a psychosomatic uh, exercise? David, I think generally after vaccines, after many vaccines, people develop what generally called flu-like symptoms, myalgias, arthralgias, um, a, a headache. These symptoms can, they typically, most commonly, are done within the first day after the vaccine, um, uh, sometimes can extend a couple of days. But if somebody has a, a headache that lasts more than about four days, um, or if someone develops bruising that doesn't that is seems unusual for them those are things that they should get checked out but just feeling kind of punky for a day or two after vaccination is is completely uh, i don't want to say normal but it is not out of the range of what should be expected after a vaccination that's exactly right and and uh, when you have these side effects due to the vaccine that means that your immune system is reacting to it that's a good thing in fact, when I got the vaccine, I got very little in the way of symptoms, and I was a little concerned that maybe my immune system hasn't reacted as strongly. Younger people tend to have more in the way of side effects, and the key, as, as uh, Bill mentioned, fatigue, muscle aches, fevers, headache are all sort of typical symptoms uh, in reaction to the, the actual vaccine. And those are indication your body is reacting to them. They usually last 24, 48 hours, at longest, usually 72 hours. If the reaction goes on for longer, I think certainly four days, then you should probably seek medical attention. I've also seen a lot of guidance that you should not be using non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like Motrin or Aleve, and some guidance that you ha shouldn't even take Tylenol. Uh, the To me, and uh, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on this, to me, I can understand the idea about not disrupting the inflammatory system at all with the use of non-steroidals. I don't understand the logic in not taking Tylenol, and I've been telling my patients that, that yeah, if you're feeling really lousy, take a Tylenol. That's not going to disrupt your immunity. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, pediatricians have been looking at this for years because uh, children get vaccines and parents want to give them something beforehand, anticipating a side effect. And they it has been found that if you pre-medicate with uh, Tylenol or ibuprofen that the uh, immune response is reduced. However, if you give it later on after they've uh, begun the reaction, at the time that they start to develop symptoms, there's no evidence that that harms the immune reaction. Therefore, you shouldn't give it preventatively, but you can use these drugs symptomatically to reduce your symptoms uh, if you do get a strong reaction. And the, the patients that I've been working with that have had reactions and have taken Tylenol have almost across the board had very good results with that. It's taken, it's taken away the, the, the most annoying symptoms that they've had. Yes, I would recommend that. And that, that will not harm the immune response. There are a number of studies that have proven that in other vaccines.
great advice. In various countries, we suspended the administration of the AstraZeneca vaccine. They're compiling statistics, and they have offered some guidance to people about what they should be sensitive to or not. And it, there's been a bit of a stop, looks like start again aspect to this. D- David, this is a public relations, um, a medical public relations issue, not as much a scientific issue. I think what they're, I think much of what they're waiting to do is I think the, the Europeans at this point are going to kind of wait until the results of the uh, U.S. study is released, which again is supposed to be very, very soon. Um, and then they, they will use that to begin to rebuild confidence in the vaccine. But as you know, with anything medical, once you have have had a negative impact on the confidence, regaining trust by a large population can be difficult. So that's going to be an issue. And then there's the, the you know, the international uh, issues with these vaccines in Europe and that the the Pfizer is actually a German product or an, you know it's an EU product whereas the uh, the AstraZeneca is a is a, a primarily British product although it is it is manufactured in on, on the continent so but there there's still there's some some rivalries that come into play on that too and uh, many Europeans they want the European vaccine um, so that's going to come into play but I think that what will happen is they're going to is once the US data comes out there is going to be a wholesale push to combine that with the uh, the existing data to really mark market this again to the European people. Now, beyond that, the rest of the world um, has not turned down the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, the Australians specifically have said, fine, if you don't want it, send it all to us. We'll use it. Um, so it's there is fortunately not a risk. It doesn't appear of losing any vaccine that's going to go out of date because there are plenty of people who are very happy to stick it in their arms. Yeah, one of the unfortunate things about this is that trust is a very important element in healthcare, and trust in vaccine safety is very important. And uh, to uh, fa- create false alarms um, really reduces that trust and increases the hesitancy in receiving vaccines. And so I, I think that the public uh, message should have been much more cautious and much less aggressive. This was a this was not a true signal. This did not represent uh, increased incidence in thromboembolic uh, events, and it should have been uh, just monitored rather than stopping the vaccine temporarily. In in my in my opinion. But I also I do worry that in a less informed segment of the population. They're going to hear that oh, a vaccine's causing clots, and they're going to be afraid. And we know we already know that there is a significant portion of the population, at least in the U.S., and it's similar in not as as high, but but there is a significant portion in Europe who is resistant to vaccination. 
Um, that's going to be an increasing problem in the United States probably a month from now. Uh, we're going to be worrying, not worrying so much about who's the priority and who is getting rationed to get the vaccine. We're going to be worrying about how do we get more people to get the vaccine so that we can more assuredly reach herd immunity, even though we're not exactly sure what that level is. We, need, we know we need as many as possible to get vaccinated to reach that level. Okay. I want to circle back to that point in a moment, but uh, both of you have been very clear in prior podcasts that there is the medical virus and then there's the information virus, uh, both of which have contagions and, and risks associated. And uh, there is a fair amount of disinformation out there. And I would just note, uh, not for you, you guys to uh, comment on, but this has also become a geopolitical issue. And our intelligence community has documented, um, you know, that unfortunately the pandemic and the vaccines have become part of the geopolitical information wars between nation states. And uh, there are a variety of actors who are driving disinformation. So again, uh, the insights that you have around uh, what I refer to the data around AstraZeneca and Bill, to your point about uh, there's a public relations aspect uh, to what's occurring here. Uh, very, very important. And Fred, uh, your point is uh, very, very well taken uh, just about the importance of trust uh, in terms of the medical establishment and uh, and various products. Um, maybe you can take us to the data over the last week or so, what that is saying, and uh, build a follow up just on the the point of getting to critical mass or herd immunity. Maybe you guys could comment about the data and what you're seeing and and what we have to pay attention to over the next you know three to six to eight weeks. Three weeks ago, there were only three states that had increasing rates of COVID uh, in, the, in the whole U.S. Uh, as of last night, I've, I don't have this morning's data, but as of last night, 24 states had increasing rates of COVID data. Now, some of that was due to some anomalies in data reporting, and the overall national rate was down by 5% over the previous week. So we're still going the right direction. But the the rate of decrease has not quite plateaued, but it's showing signs of plateauing. The other side of that, though, is the pace of vaccination is starting to pick up. We are now averaging right at 2.5 million doses a day. That's a 13% increase this week over last week. We have about 74 million Americans that have received at least one dose of the vaccination, and about half of that number is fully vaccinated. And then I, what I think is a very interesting statistic is as of yesterday, almost 150 million doses have been distributed in the United States. And our track record is that at any given week, we're able to get up to about 80 to 85% of the distributed doses that have total distributed doses administered. So really over the next week, we should get to about 80 to 90 million people that have had at least one dose. And then we know, now there are some overlaps here, but we know there have been 30 million people that have been infected with COVID-19. And we think that the ratio of known of unknown infections to known infections is probably on the order of two to three to one. So, 
roughly 100 million people who have had some degree of exposure. Now, we don't know how long their relative immunity lasts, but they, but we think they're going to have at least some relative immunity. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be getting to well over half of the country that are have some degree of immunity, whether it's by vaccination or by natural infection. So that's where do we need to get for herd immunity? That's that's debatable. Is it 70 percent or what we've been hearing more recently is higher numbers like 80, 85, perhaps even 90 percent. But are those looking at because we need to motivate the public to get vaccination so the public health community takes something that we don't really know the number so let's choose a higher number because that's going to encourage more people to get it not that i'm saying that our public health community would ever manipulate the data to achieve a communications end we know we need to get to a, a large number which is why i had said earlier that we really want to get as many people vaccinated as possible yeah i i agree with bill um the number of people required to achieve herd immunity depends on two, three factors predominantly. First of all, the efficacy of the vaccine. The higher the efficacy, the lower the number need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. We're fortunate in having the highest uh, possible efficacy of vaccines at 94% for Madeira and for Pfizer. Uh, the second key factor is the reproductive rate of the virus within the community. The higher that reproductive rate, the higher the number that will be required to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. Because a number of states have decided to end masks mandates, uh, that reproductive rate will stay higher, and therefore we will it will require a higher percentage to achieve herd immunity. The third uh, key factor is the speed with which we can vaccinate individuals. And we are doing uh, very well uh, in ramping up our vaccination. So that should help to some extent uh, this and maybe lower a little bit the percent that would be required to achieve herd immunity. But I think it's it's the lowest it could be is 70 percent. And I, I think given our poor uh, use of masks, I think it's going to be in the 80, 80 to 90 percent range before we can achieve herd immunity. And your take on uh, the rite of passage known as spring break? Uh, University of Florida canceled their spring break this year, recognizing that this is a temptation, that it's just too great a temptation. Uh, when young people they get together, they like to socialize, and I understand that. And uh, masks really interfere with socialization. Staying six feet away from others is not realistic among the young, I don't think. So I think the best approach was the University of Florida which was the cancel spring break. But uh, unfortunately, the, the irony is that a lot of other colleges have allowed spring break and they're all coming down to Florida to vacation. It's, it's a little bit of a problem. Fortunately, though, I think, and I don't know the ratio, but there is a, a large number of universities across the country that are terrified in having to deal 
back at their university with the aftermath of a spring break. So what many universities did for this winter semester was they moved the start date later. You know, many didn't start until mid-February, and then they're going straight through with no breaks and then finishing up um, sometime in April. So basically cramming a, a typical four-month semester into two and a half to three months. And I assume the lag time with statistics three to six weeks. Is that right? So we'll so yeah. we know what we need to know in about three to six weeks, right? About three weeks. We'll know. Well, and, and, and spring break is not a right. you know, single week. It, it lasts over the, basically the entirety from the first week in March through Easter, basically. Yeah. So we probably won't know it about April 20th, something like that. We'll see the full effect of the spring break probably. Great. A question that repeatedly comes up and I wanted to throw it out to both of you. I I have been vaccinated. I received my second shot. It's been the uh, two-week period after my second shot. What precautions do I still need to take, not only for my own protection, but the protection of my friends and my loved ones? Well, David, my approach and what I've been telling my the patients that I work with is, you know, I, I never say always or never in medicine. But in this case, all of the currently authorized vaccines are almost completely protective against severe disease or death. And they are all, especially the mRNA vaccines, even highly protective against any symptomatic disease, except possibly with regards to the South African variant, but that doesn't have a strong foothold in the United States right now. And the data is increasingly good that full vaccination, meaning two weeks after one of the mRNA vaccines, uh, or after both doses of the mRNA vaccines, or two weeks after the one dose of the J&J, that that if you are fully vaccinated, you, that significantly reduces the likelihood of becoming infected or, importantly, infectious. So what can you do? You know, what CDC has said you can do is that basically once fully vaccinated, people who are fully vaccinated can gather together unmasked without concern if everybody is fully vaccinated. If you are, if you have somebody in the group that is not fully vaccinated, they say, well, basically, then you should only keep one household that is not fully vaccinated. Um, if you get beyond that, then it's considered a large group, and they very, very much dis, uh, discourage that. So what I've been telling people is that that well, you want to do everything you can to get everybody vaccinated, and then you should feel comfortable. I mean, grandparents that are vaccinated can see their grandkids and can see them without their masks on, even though those kids may may have uh, infection that is that we know kids have a higher rate of being asymptomatic. Um, it's still safe to the grandparents, and that's who we're most trying to protect. Um, offices. Offices can start thinking about going back. The issue of do you require vaccination or not is a that's an HR question as much it is as, as it is a science question. If I was the if I had, could make all the rules, I'd say yeah, anyone who's vaccinated can come back. But that has significant HR uh, and legal implications. And can you or can you not say that, especially with an authorized, not an approved vaccine? Um, but then we still need to take the non-pharmaceutical measures until we have knocked this down to negligible levels throughout all of our communities across the United States, because it's only getting it down to those levels that we're going to prevent the development of new variants. So it's not so much about preventing disease 
that we need to continue to take these mitigation measures. It's about preventing the development of new uh, new variants that's going to be so important for us. The one uh, very exciting piece of data that uh, has just come out and is not yet published, but I've seen it in three newspapers, is from Israel. Uh, they have found that if you are vaccinated, you have a 94 to 97% chance you cannot spread it to others. And therefore, not only you're not at risk of getting disease, you cannot spread disease. So that's very encouraging. The concern is if there are escape uh, variants that escape the vaccine, if other people that aren't vaccinated spread it to you and it's, it's one of these mutations that escapes the vaccine, you could, we could be in big trouble. And then everybody that's had the vaccine would again be at risk. Thank you both very much. I hope everyone stays safe and well. And thank you, obviously, for your continued vigilance around the data, separating fact from fiction around the information and helping to have a calm conversation. So thanks again. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Individuals and organizations turn to RAID for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution to get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic and vaccines delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. 